Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. Today's class is going to be fascinating. Fascinating in part because <laughs> it was so difficult to prepare. I'll begin with a little confession. I couldn't make heads or tails out of the verses we're going to study for quite some time. I really, really, really had to rack my brains and look deeply into the words of our sages and contemplate the teachings until I could finally start to make some sense out of the illuminated teachings of our Torah. All right, so let's say this. <laughs> We're learning Megillah's Rus, getting very close to the end. The Megillah, the scroll of Rus, is a part of what's called the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. And the Tanakh is comprised of the Chumash, the five books of Moses. The first volume, Genesis, is filled with stories. The second volume is filled with some stories and a lot of information. The third book of Torah is almost entirely filled with laws, rules, regulations, and information of how we're supposed to live a life that is upright, just, moral, religious, connected to Hashem. The book of Numbers goes back to stories, stories now not about individuals, but about the nation. And the book of Deuteronomy is a restatement of all the mitzvahs, all the instructions we get in the Torah. Studying Torah is never an easy thing. It's not easy. It's not easy. It can't be easy. I'll tell you why. You're reading a document that's supposed to ring with relevance in today's day and age. And it was supposed to have rung with the same relevancy a century ago, five centuries ago, millennia ago, two millennia, and even over 33 centuries ago. It was supposed to be equally relevant. The Torah is not more or less applicable in any particular time, setting, or milieu. That's the meaning of Torah emet. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem is the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And Tof is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the overarching message is that emet, the truth, is always true in every time and in every place. And anything which is only relevant or true in a specific milieu or setting is never really true, at least not objectively speaking. It's a subjective truism that reflects the vicissitudes of a particular time, perhaps, or multiple times, but certainly cannot always be applicable. 
But the movement of time or the vicissitude of time has nothing on Torah because Torah is godly and godly, God transcends all of human history and of space. So there is no geographic location in the world where a Jewish man or woman cannot live as a Ben Obas Yisrael, according to the Torah. There is no geographic location on planet Earth where a human being, any human being, cannot achieve Nurture and foster a profound relationship with God. You must understand this. This is ABC from a Torah perspective. And the Torah is our blueprint for life. In fact, the word Torah means instruction. If you open a game of Monopoly in Hebrew, you'll get Torah Otshimush, instructions. Here's how you play this game. Well, this game called life has got instructions, and we will only succeed if we follow the instructions. It makes no sense to play hit or miss when you're trying to use a new appliance. It makes all the sense in the world to read the instruction book. But an instruction book that's always going to be relevant is never going to be apparently relevant. It's going to have to be written in so complex and sophisticated a language that on the surface it may seem simplistic or irrelevant. It is only through intense study that we are able to extrapolate, to glean, and to begin to absorb its uplifting, inspirational clarity, guidance, and instructions. The Torah is not easy to study. The Chumash is not easy to study. But it's easier than studying the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. Because the later stories of the Jewish people which are not history. I mean, they are historical, but it's not history. Because when you read the Tanakh as a history book, it sounds ridiculous. If it were intended to be a history book, it would be ridiculous. It leads Bible critics to say all kinds of ridiculous things like the Bible is sewn together from many different voices and they, they just conflated a whole bunch of stuff as a hodgepodge. Never mind the contradictions, they were too dumb to actually cross-reference to make sure that it wouldn't, one piece wouldn't contradict the other, really. <laughs> we, the Jewish people, the people who valued and lionized scholarship and knowledge over jousting and material might or military prowess, always really. We didn't have the gumption, <laughs> the intellectual uh, resources to make sure that what we sewed together was accurate. Now, my friends, chas v'shalom. As a Torah Jew, as a believing Jew, to me, the words of the Tanakh are divri alikim chayim, the words of our living God. I think it's very complex when we come to the stories of the Tanakh. Why did the Torah highlight certain stories? Why did the Torah emphasize, or why did the Navi, the prophet, convey particular episodes in the fashion or way that they did? This requires great study. Incidentally, it's the reason that in Torah circles, the study of Tanakh is not nearly as popular as the study of Talmud or the study of Chumash, because these are tomes that are written in a more express or clear fashion as to here's what you must do, and here's the jurisprudence or the logic, rhyme and reason of what we're about to do. You study Tanakh. It's very difficult. It's very difficult.
everything I just told you is applicable <laughs> really in any book and at any time. I'm telling it to you specifically now. And if I sound like a broken record, you forgive me, but at least I'm consistent. I'm telling it to you now because the verses we're going to study today on the surface seem mind-blowing, incongruous. It was impossible for me to understand this at first. This is a story about Rus and Boaz, right? Rus, she's the heroine, comes from Moab, leaves behind a pagan past, embraces the holiness of Am Yisrael, wants to be a part of the Jewish people's experience, earns her place in history. In a meteoric rise, she goes from being really a few years earlier, a princess in a pagan palace, to marrying Jewish nobility, the leader of the Jewish people, the Torah leader, the Rebbe of the day, Boaz. And then he tragically dies on her, like the next day, that night. You would think that Megillus Rus would tell us a little about uh, how did Rus cope? We know about her fears, her insecurities, her unconventional behavior, her loyalty to Naomi, her readiness for sacrifice and risk. We don't hear nothing about Rus, like, like nothing. Vatele Ben, she has a baby. That's it. Something as important as Boaz's passing, is merely alluded to. It should have said, Vateled ben Liboaz. It didn't say that. It didn't say a, a son was, she bore him a son, she bore a son. From this we must understand, extrapolate, says Medrash, the Shmuel Hanavi, the prophet Samuel, the author of Megillus Rus, was conveying to us that you must know that Boaz was AWOL. Why would he have gone AWOL? Boaz was committed to this mission. He wanted to father this child and raise this child, a man like Boaz, who we have seen as a person of action, of commitment, of tenacity, of courage, perseverance, suddenly disappears, drops the ball. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Must be he wasn't around. What happened to Rus? The Talmud tells us she merited extraordinary longevity. I talked about this yesterday. You would think after verse 13, we would hear about Rus. How did she acclimate herself as a widow after being married for one night? Did people accuse her of bringing bad luck to Boaz? Was she beloved or perhaps shunned? Was she demonized? Was she valued or appreciated? How did Rus put her life back together? We know so much about how she's reached this point, and yet the Megillah goes silent. Verse 14 turns to a group of women and their chatter. I'm not exaggerating. I start to read this. I'm like, my head is exploding. I don't get it. I just don't get what is going on here. You listen to the verses and tell me if your head isn't exploding. I mean, let's be honest about this. We're trying to understand. I'm not saying this with any disrespect. I love the Torah. And I, I am in awe of Hashem's Torah. 
I'm a pygmy, a, a cockroach, looking at divine in, in inspiration. But I have to understand this. You have to understand this. That's the meaning of studying Torah. Just bowing the head of submission and say it is what it is, it says what it says, it must be what it must be, isn't the meaning of Talmud Torah. We have to be able to absorb these messages. And if I've assumed the responsibility of trying to help you understand Megillus, I need to understand this myself first. Now listen to these verses. Please be mindful of everything we've studied till now. And if this is the first time you're joining us, well, I'm glad you're joining. Go back and listen. You'll learn a lot of amazing things. But it will help you appreciate why the rest of us are going to be just amazed. Verse 14. So the woman, they said to Naomi. Naomi. She, she hasn't even like, said anything in almost like a half a dozen verses. The last time she said something was at the end of chapter 3. Half a dozen? Sorry, we're at verse 14. She hasn't said a word for 13 verses now. The last thing she said was, stay home for harvest. Shviviti, stay home, my daughter. Let's see how things unfold. Naomi was the visionary, the architect of everything that happened till now. And she sent Rus onto this very risky and dangerous mission. And Rus comes home and she's kind of empty-handed, doesn't have anything to show but a promise. And Naomi is filled with a sense of trust and faith and she says, you just wait. We'll see how this goes down. And chapter 14 opens with Boaz, the man of action, charging forward, doing everything he promised to do. 13 verses later, everything has been taken care of, including the conception of a child, and Boaz is gone. And Naomi, whose presence we only could have assumed, imagined she probably must have been at that wedding, she must have been present at the courtroom when all this was unfolding. She must have been. She must have been engaged in the purchase or the sale of that heirloom legacy estates. All of a sudden, Naomi is the focus of a conversation, chatter, it seems, of a group of women. The woman said to Naomi, they said, Baruch Hashem. They said, wow, this is amazing. Blessed be God, blessed be Hashem. Who has not left you without a Redeemer Hayom today. May his name be famous in Israel. All right, so they're talking to Naomi, who clearly needs to be spoken to. She needs to receive some kind of message. I don't even know why. Um... Thank God they say to her, he's given you a redeemer. Don't you think maybe Rus deserved a little attention? Can you only imagine the raw emotion a young woman, now widowed for the second time, only this time pregnant? As we discussed yesterday, the Mepharshim seemed to indicate that she had a very sad and despondent pregnancy. All of that is glossed over. We go from conception, fast forward, 
Nine months later, Vatela Ben, exactly nine months, 271 days later, she has a baby. What'd they tell her? Rus, find comfort in your child. Yes, it is true. You're a widow once again. But this child, he will be a provider for you. He will take care of you. He seals your place in history. You have borne the child who will be the ancestor of the house of monarchy. Maybe they don't know that. Okay, you'll, you'll have a child who give you nachas, who give you a sense of delight and pleasure. No, no, nobody's talking to Rus. They forgot about Rus. <laughs> they forgot about the mother who had the baby. Instead, they're talking to the grandmother. They said, oh, Naomi, blessed be God, he has not restrained you from having a redeemer. He hasn't left you without a redeemer. I mean, okay, let's be like really frank here. Naomi is an amazing woman. She worries about her daughter-in-law. She wants somehow to be there, to be a remnant of the family. Uncle Tov, he's like Plony Almoni, Mr. Anonymous, worthless. He's not going to be helping us. And, and Boaz's children have all died. Elimelech is dead and his children die. Now Boaz died. There's like nothing left of the family. So the ladies come to her and they say, look, Rus, look, Naomi, you have a redeemer. God hasn't left you without a redeemer. Because, because your husband's cousin has just fathered a child with your former daughter-in-law, so you have a redeemer. And he'll be famous. Now, really, how do you know? <laughs> Who says it's so good to be famous? Why would that bring her any comfort? Who cares if he'll be famous or if he won't be famous? If she needs a redeemer, she needs a redeemer. I'm not asking scholars these questions. I, I'm, 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 I'm asking these questions like a, just a, a normal person with half a brain who's studied the scroll up until this point and is wondering, what? Could you say that again? Verse 14, after the whole story of Boaz and Rus, is it conversation, the chatter of a group of women to Naomi, giving her the strange form of comfort? I mean, why was she grieving? She didn't lose a loved one. They seemed to be comforting her. Boaz is not her son-in-law. Boaz is her children's cousin, her erstwhile husband's nephew, and he's died. But Rus, who was her daughter-in-law, is now a widow, and they don't, they can't be bothered to talk to Rus. They can't be bothered to tell Rus, oh, you know, Rus, you're alone again. You'll probably remain that way, but it's okay, you have a son. And if verse 14 doesn't drive you crazy, verse 15 should. So this, this redeemer, this, uh, this child, the woman said to Naomi, he is going to become for you a life restorer, a meshiv nefesh. He is going to sustain you in your old age. This child who's not even really related to you. I mean, he's like a great nephew. He's going to sustain you. You know why? Because your daughter-in-law who loves you, Yolodatu has borne him. She's better to you than seven sons. Wow, that makes so much sense. Said who? 
this child is going to be the one who restores your soul, who provides for you, because it's your daughter-in-law who loves you's son. And he's, she's better than, than seven sons. Sorry, really? Can you explain this to me? Typically, when there's a conversation, or if I'm telling you something, it's because you actually, like, need this information. <laughs> you do need this information. You and I need to study Torah. It's the only thing that's going to keep us sane these days. So, so they're telling. These women are coming to Rus, and they, they're not just chattering or just saying things. They're, they're, they're saying things that they assume Rus wants or needs to hear. Sorry, Naomi needs, wants and needs to hear. Why don't we talk about Rus? Who's going to sustain her? Who's going to take care of her long after Naomi's gone? If Rus loves Naomi, Naomi is much older than Rus, decades older. In all likelihood, Naomi's going to pass many years before Rus. She does, by the way. Rus will provide for her. Tell me, who provided for Naomi up until this point? She stayed home like an old woman, and the young princess went out to the fields collecting gleanings. So Rus loves her mother-in-law. She'll take care of her. It's not like Naomi has competition. There isn't a new mother-in-law. Boaz's parents are long dead. This is the only vestige of family that Rus has. She's clearly capable. She's managed to put a roof over their heads or at least food in their bodies for the last couple of months. She'll keep doing that. Tell me, who sustained Naomi for the last nine months? Oh, and by the way, didn't Naomi make a lot of money off those fields? There's a lot of real estate there. She had a big ketubah payment. Go invest the money. She probably could have lived off that money. I bet she even lived off that money for the rest of her life. So what's the issue? She's an unhappy older widow. But money? Financial issues? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And that's really something that provides us with an enormous question mark. Enormous question mark. What in heaven is going on here? The Ibn Ezra, Rashi doesn't even comment here. The Ibn Ezra says, Baruch Hashem, blessed be God, Asher lo hishpit loch goel hayom, who has not kept a redeemer from you, and not left you without a redeemer. So Ibn Ezra says, Hatam, the reasoning here, the rationale here is, Ba'avur sheyukam sheim hamait, because the name of the deceased will now be restored to the inheritance. Okay, so the real estate's going to have a name. It's still going to be fields of Machlon or Elimelech estates. Why, why is that even important to Naomi at this point? She's alone in the world, so the field does have a name. So what? 
I mean, Ibn Ezra is understanding Goel in a very limited and literal fashion here. That's how we talked about the Goel before. We weren't waiting for the Redeemer before. The first Goel had to step aside. The Goel simply meant he who would redeem the field, he who would redeem root. Okay. So Hashem has not withheld the Goel. Who knows? Maybe this even could be referring to Boaz. He didn't leave you withheld the Redeemer. And you have a Redeemer. But that's the child. Yeah, Ibn Ezra says, the child. That, that the name of the deceased is going to be now perpetuated. By the way, this boy is not going to be named Machlon. Just in case you were curious. We don't know of another famous person in history ever to bear that name again. Elimelech is a name that has stayed with the Jewish people. Machlon, I've never met, never met a Machlon in my life. I don't know that there's such, certainly it's not a popular name amongst Jewish people. So what does that mean? She's supposed to take comfort in the fact that her dead son's widow has now conceived a child with another member of the family, a cousin of her dead son, and that's going to perpetuate the name, which in fact it doesn't in literal fashion at all. But this boy ends up inheriting all these fields. He's a rich boy, that's for sure. <laughs> He's got Elimelech's estates, Machlon, Nechilion, and Boaz's estates. I don't know how he managed, but you find that he became a very righteous person. He didn't really care about the material wealth and plenty that he was endowed with at birth. Okay, Ibn Ezra's doesn't really help us here. What does Lechalkel mean? Ibn Ezra says, well, you, you know this word. You've seen it. It shows up in Genesis 47. Vayechalkel Yosef. Yosef provided or sustained for the members of his family who had come into the land of Egypt. Okay, so we're talking here about literal sustenance. He's going to be a meshiv nefesh. He's going to restore your spirit. And he's lechalkel. He's going to take care of you in your old age. She's not even old yet. I mean, like, well, maybe she is old. I, I don't know. This is a baby. Until he can make a living, it's going to go by another two decades. Who's going to sustain her till then? Oh, she has money. If she has money now, so put away for later. Invest it. I make, this is like, you can't make heads or tails out of this. What is it telling us? Firstly, it seems entirely disjointed. Secondly, it seems entirely off the topic, off mark. Like superfluous. I don't know. Things a group of women. Who cares about this? So, so what if a group of women said something 3,000 years ago? Like this is part of our eternal instruction? This is giving you and I guidance in today's day and age? Please tell me how. What even does all this mean? Those are some of my questions for today. You better not go away. I mean, please don't go away because you want to know the answer. By the way, once we figure this out, you're going to be flying. The messages that are being conveyed here are astounding. Astounding. We just have to get there. Okay. So let me take you on a little bit of a journey here. First, we're going to go down Pshat Lane. We'll take a stroll down the lane of Pshat, just trying to understand what exactly they meant. What were they even saying? And in order to understand that, we, we probably have to take a deeper look into why were they speaking? What 
What motivated this conversation? Why did these women seek out Naomi? And once we have a little bit of shot in place, <laughs> we're going to go down the road of Medrash. The road of Medrash will take us into a, an extraordinary, like historic panorama of human history. And this will all be infused with clarity and inspiration by virtue of Hasidic teaching. So, I'm going to begin uh, to delve into this by sharing with you the words of Rabbeinu Yitzchak Arama, the 15th century author of the Akedas Yitzchak. So, the Akedas says like this, who, who were these women, firstly? He says, these are women who were motivated by love. And because they loved Naomi, this is what moved them. This is what inspired them to speak. And they blessed Hashem. They said, Yan, because Lehish Bislach Goyal. He hasn't withheld you from having a Redeemer. Hasn't left you without a Redeemer. Rabbeinu Yitzchak says, in order to appreciate what they meant, after all of the demoralization, you really gave up. How much suffering, deprivation? Throw your hands up. And after all that, a woman who left the land of Israel, wealthy, sterling reputation, held in the highest regard by everybody, returned broken, widowed, robbed of her children, barefoot and penniless. Helpless. She said, did anybody imagine when you returned that Boaz, who had no obligation, who could have imagined that Boaz, the Boaz who is not under any Levite obligation, remember he's not a sibling, he's just a cousin according to most opinions, according to some opinions, an uncle. But that's not under the obligation, the mandate of Leverite marriage. Who could have imagined that he would have done this? That he would have given his estate to those deceased relatives for the child that she has born. So the first thing they said there is Naomi. Did you ever like stop and think at what has transpired? Did you realize what an extraordinary reality unfolded? How blessed you are? You're very blessed. Nobody could have imagined that this ever would have happened. You were done for. 
And after making that comforting statement, telling her to look at what has happened instead of what, what she's missing, what she now has, then Then these women prayed. That this Redeemer, this baby, would indeed become famous in Israel. That he would be a leader, a notable personality in Israel. In your youth, says Rabbeinu Yitzchak Aramba Bino Uroi Soi, in his youth, Yilacholameshev Nefesh, he will restore your spirit. Bishashuav, Terucha Kamarashkeda, with his playful, cute, sweet child behavior, he will dispel the darkness of depression. He'll lift you out of the doldrums. Ubabachur Soi, and when he grows up, He'll take care of you. So what are you worried about? And how do you know this is going to happen? Maybe his mother is not going to share her son with, forgive me, the fake grandmother. She's not really a grandmother. She's a foster grandmother, at best. Poor Rus, she has nothing. This child is her own flesh and blood. Who says she's going to share the flesh, flesh and blood with Naomi? She certainly will. Yan, she loves you so much. For you, she forsake her own nation, and her birthplace of her childhood. So surely, she is going to be, she'll be there for you. She'll share the child. Now, if you think of the words that Rabbi Yitzchak Arama writes, it's pretty clear that we're dealing with a woman who needed some kind of comfort, some kind of inspiration. The Eshkol HaKofer, and this Pasuk tells us that after the baby was born, Naomi had put up a brave face trying to bolster Ruth's spirits during the duration of her pregnancy. She fell into a deep depression. Eshkolakofer says she was devastated by Boaz's death. And every time she looked at the fatherless baby, it just reminded her of her broken life, her husband, her children, having no real grandchildren, and this baby who has no family, lonely baby, being raised by his mother, a single mother. Eshkel Akofer says all of this caused her to kind of relapse, to re-suffer her previous mourning and her grief and her anxiety. And she became deeply despondent. The Eshkola Kofra's explanation helps us understand why and how the Akedis Yitzchak says these were the people who loved her. So the woman who loved her, they came forward and they said, Naomi, you can't fall into a depression. Why is Naomi part of the story, though? 
Why weren't they comforting Ruth? Who was there for Ruth? Was Ruth just like happy-go-lucky? <laughs> Forty, beautiful and widowed, and nobody's ever married me again. But I have a baby. That's fine. I'll be okay. Shouldn't I'm, I'm sure somebody comforted Ruth. It's not. It's inconceivable that everybody turned their backs on her. In fact, Ruth is a heroine amongst the Jewish people, and she's held in the highest of regards. Why don't we hear about the comfort she receives? I mean, clearly, Megillus Rus is telling us something. It's telling us something. So let's talk a little bit about pshat. Let's just go through some simple pshat, and I think a bit of a picture will start to emerge for us. So, Firstly, I don't know if uh, only, but firstly, it's important to note that the Alshech comments and he says, Naomi, you have to realize that if Boaz hadn't consummated his marriage with Ruth that night, you would be finished. Finished. There would be nothing left to your extended family. So instead of focusing on the fact that Boaz died, Alshech says, they said to her, thank God that Boaz lived as long as he lived. Ploni Almoni was not going to be help of help. Only Boaz had the courage to do what had to be done. And so focus on the fact that the passing, the death of Boaz was not a bad thing, but actually how fortuitous it was that Boaz was able to do, that he was there to do what he did. In the words of the Igeras Shmuel, he says, this verse actually contains two distinct statements, two distinct messages that were conveyed by this group of women who loved Naomi. They're very special, by the way. They don't have a name. But we are going to see that they were inspired and motivated by higher consciousness. The first thing is they sought to comfort her on the passing of Boaz. Boaz's death devastated her. Me again? She said, God hates me. This is just unbelievable. I have like the anti-Midas touch. Everything I touch dies, except for Rus. So they said to her, number one, here's comfort. We're here to comfort you for Boaz. We understand that Boaz's death has made you so despondent, has depressed you. And the first thing they said is, Baruch Hashem. According to the Gerish Murlis, Baruch Hashem, blessed be God, is a shortened version of what we say today, the blessing we recite, heaven forfend, at the loss of a loved one, or really the way we respond to death. We say, Baruch Dayan HaEmet. Blessed is the true judge. It's a declaration of faith. It says, as the Talmud instructs us to, in Mesechet Brachot, in the last chapter, that just as we have a sacred duty, a moral mandate, really, a faith mandate, to bless Hashem, to count our blessings, to acknowledge the goodness that comes from God, 
so too we also have to acknowledge Hashem when bad things happen. It is a cardinal principle of Jewish faith that everything, everything comes from Hashem. The good and the bad. Really, in truth, there is no bad that comes from Hashem, but in our limited vision, it's very bad. We can't understand it. But we have to acknowledge that it comes from God. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't behoove us to say, well, I'm not going to be angry at God because bad things happen, but that's nothing to do with God. There's a very, very foolish book called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People Suggests Rahman al-Islam, pure heresy. When bad things happen, don't be angry at God. Feel bad for God. He's a loser. He can't help you anyway. He's suffering more than you. <laughs> this is like mamish apikursis. Wholesale denial of Hashem Echad. Everything comes from God. So a Torah Jew, when they lose a loved one, says, Baruch Dayana Emes, this is an act of judgment. It is painful. I didn't ask for this. I don't want it. But I know it comes from Hashem. And I know Hashem knows best. I believe Hashem knows best. I understand it. The first thing he said is Baruch Hashem. And then they said to her, look at the positive side of things. Lahish bislach. God has not left you without a redeemer. He took from you Boaz, and Boaz was your hope, your knight in shining armor. He was the one who would restore your family dignity. He was the one who was going to rebuild some of the life that you lost for you with honor and respect. It was not to be. But Hashem didn't leave you without a redeemer. Yerushmuel says, Even though today he's dead. Do not, do not know me. Interpret this as a bad omen. See within this. As we talked about yesterday from the Zohar Chadosh. The Gerishmol draws in the wisdom of the Zohar Chodesh and he says, you must view the circumstances that Boaz came to this world only to achieve this. Only to achieve this. Boaz did a lot of great things for the Jewish people. He was a great leader. Boaz is a name today. People name their children Boaz. And for, for good reason. Not just because he sired or fathered the ancestor of David HaMelech HaMashiach. He was a great leader. He was the one who brought about economic relief. He's the one who didn't abandon the Jewish people in their hour of economic collapse, in their hour of need. Elimelech, unfortunately, tragically, made a terrible mistake. He dropped the ball. He thought of his own wealth and affluence, and success. He felt that was nothing he could do. The starvation would ravage him. He would not be able to save everybody. So he just ran away. We talked about this a lot at the beginning of the narrative, of this, the scroll of this Megillah. But Boaz didn't. Boaz stayed and shared and fought back. And he restored the economy with Hashem's help. Most importantly, says the Gershmo Bitfilosai. He stayed and prayed. He led the people in prayer. 
when their sails seemed empty of any wind, he blew fresh life into the people. And he encouraged them and inspired them. He brought about an end to the circumstances by reconnecting the people to Hashem through prayer. Certainly by some of the accounts, Boaz leads Am Yisrael in military victory against their enemies. So that's nothing. To be able to inspire a shattered people, to galvanize a nation, to lead them in self-defense is nothing. It's not nothing. It's big stuff. The most important thing was missing. What was the single greatest contribution that Boaz ever made? Mate Malchus based of it. To plant the seedling of the trunk that would grow into the house of Jewish royalty. And after he had the privilege of planting that seed, quite literally, says the Igera Shmuel in his beautiful spiritual poetic language, He went to the light. He was absorbed into the light that sustains all life. A place of great happiness. Yeshmol says, you may not know, but there was a whole formidable series of adversaries and obstacles that stood before Boaz as he sought to accomplish this. It's a big deal. We're going to talk about that later on. I'll share with you something fascinating from the Kabbalah Saramak, going back to Ruth's ancestress, the eldest daughter of Lot. This is a big deal what Boaz just did. Bigger than any of us, said the woman, can possibly imagine. So don't say, Boaz died. He died. Look at this. He died. Say, he lived to do this. You aren't bereft. In the end, what Naomi really sought was a restoration of the legacy that Elimelech rightfully believed was coming from his trunk, his family, the notion of monarchy of the Jewish people. So they're comforting Naomi, and they're trying to get Naomi involved with this child. There was never a question that Ruth would raise this child. She's a mother. Every mother cares about her offspring. A mother who doesn't care about her young is, is not the opposite of righteous. She's the opposite of normal. Rambam, Maimonides and Mor Nevuchim, as well as the Sefer Achinuch, putatively, of Aaron Halevi of Barcelona, perhaps another great Rishon, and many others, talk about the mitzvah 
of shooing away the mother bird before you take the eggs of the chicks, the offspring. And the reasoning that they give for this mitzvah is because maternal feelings are not unique, not unique to human beings. They are organic. Even animals have feelings of maternity. Fraternity. Fathers amongst lions, tigers, and elephants you don't have. I mean, somebody sired the baby, but nobody cares. The bull doesn't worry about its young. The mother does. And that's natural. For us to exploit the natural or organic love, the reflexive love that a bird has for its own young, to capture it, makes us indifferent to the suffering of a living creature. And being indifferent leads us to being cruel, and being cruel leads us to being ungodly, because God is compassionate. Hashem is not worried about the mother bird. The mother bird can be slaughtered and eaten. She can turn into chicken soup. That's not the issue. The issue is your personality. The Torah, as the Sefer Echinuch says, came to kind of rectify, perfect, to tweak us, to make us everything that we should be. And because of this, it's critically important for us to understand and appreciate the notion that we, we, have to be compassionate to others. So that Rus would care about a child goes without saying. Who raised Rus? What does she know about raising a child? She was raised in a palace that was filled with pagan idolatry. Which nursery rhymes could she have known? How would a woman who has only lived as a Jewish, Jewess for a few years, how would she know how to raise a Jewish child? How would she know which nursery rhymes to sing? How would she know how you wash negavasa with a child? My father, should live and be well, told me a story that I believe he heard from the individual who is going to be mentioned in this story. There was a, as a child, I lived in Lakewood, New Jersey for a number of years. Let's just say it wasn't a hotbed of Hasidic Jewish life. It was a a lot of very Haredi Jewish life, but it wasn't Hasidic at that time at all. Anyway, um, there was a Lakewood younger man, a curly younger man, who had been married for a number of years, and he didn't have any children. And they went from one fertility specialist to the next, and the doctors really couldn't figure out why things weren't working, and, and in desperation, began to seek out blessings and advice, as Torah Jews do. And somebody told him, I don't know who, that he should go and he should see the Rebbe, see the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but he was said, well, not a chassid, it's not, a, it's not exactly our thing. It's not our thing. But, you know, time went on, and um, they weren't getting younger, and uh, they weren't conceiving. So this is in the early 70s. He schedules a yechidus. In the wee hours of the morning, they enter the Rebbe's study, this younger man, this young, young man and his wife. And the Rebbe asks him, tell me, when does one 
begin to wash natilat yadayim, what we call in Yiddish negelvasser, with a child. So the man doesn't know. Doesn't know. He's just a Torah scholar. He doesn't know. He says, um, "Imagine three years old." Rebbe said, "Nay." Then the kind heaped off the hand, when the child or raises his hands, which is very early on. Already then, you wash natilat yadayim on the child. Now, when you would come into the Rebbe's study for Yechidas, for this moment, this private moment, you would usually write a note, which the Rebbe would read in lightning speed. And the Rebbe would respond. And for most Hasidim, it felt like an eternity, but it was actually usually a very short amount of time. And that was the end of the Yechidas. He didn't even get a bracha. And he was like surprised, demoralized, frustrated, probably even a little angry. Like, what, what was the point? The, the Rebbe was... Uh, Showing him he didn't know something. He didn't even give him a blessing. Except that within that year, his wife had conceived and they were blessed with a child. In other words, that was the way that the Rebbe gave the bracha. Maybe giving him that piece of information. I don't know. That's, the rest is speculation, but these are the facts. How would Rus know how to raise a Jewish child? I, I don't think that's an unreasonable question. And this child, this child is supposed to become a very, very holy man. But guess what? Holiness has to be nurtured from the earliest moments in life. And the holier the neshama, the more care that has to be given. Do you know that when the Rebbe was born, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe sent a series of telegrams to his chosset, the Rebbe's father and mother. And one of the instructions was that when the baby would wake up in the middle of the night before Rebbe Tzachana would feed her baby, she should wash the child natilat yadayim. Nobody does that. Nobody has to. <laughs> wash the baby natilat yadayim in the morning. Rebbe's holy neshama need to be nurtured from the very beginning. Who raised Moses? We talked about this baby, and yesterday I shared with you this fascinating detail, which is discussed by the Torah Shalema. Medrash says that he was born Mohul. The Torah Shalema likens it to the birth of Moshe. Who raised Moshe Rabbeinu? Batya? No. Yocheved, his mother raised him. And that's how he became Moshe Rabbeinu. When he was weaned, when he was already, so to speak, on his own two feet, then he was sent to be brought up, raised in the palace by Batya, his foster mother. My dear friends, there's a real problem. There's an issue here. This entire Megillah is written to tell us the story of the development of David HaBelech. Rus is an extraordinary individual. She comes from a pagan background and yet has risen to the heights of holiness. But that's not a strategy. You can't expect to put zero in and have a tremendous return. Sometimes it happens like that. People invested in a penny stock, forgot about the, the penny stock, didn't even know they owned it. And then they got a call one day. He says, sir, you bought some stocks 25 years ago? I don't know. 
Well, that's what the records indicate. Mazel tov, you're a multimillionaire. The company has just gone public. Has this ever happened? It's happened. It's happened. Is that a strategy? <laughs> you call your financial advisor and say, I don't know, just throw it into penny stocks that probably will be worth less than a penny within a month. And who knows, in 10 years I'll be a millionaire. In simple English, you can't rely on miracles. And because you can't rely on miracles, the question is, who's going to raise this Yiddish kind? Rus is an amazing woman, a balas mesirat nefesh. She's dedicated, she's devoted, she's loving and loyal. It's gewaldic. She needs help. Who was at Rus's side from the first moment? Naomi. But Naomi has sunk into a depression. She is not to be seen. And Rus is struggling alone. Yet again. Who does Rus need? More importantly, who does the baby need? The baby needs his foster grandmother. The baby needs the righteous Naomi from the holy seed of Shevet Yehuda, who raised two beautiful sons, Machlan and Chilion. She needs to be hands-on and help Rus raise this little prince, that he should become all that he can be. But out of depression, nothing positive happens. Megillas Rus is not a story, per se. It's not a history book. It's a book of lessons for life. By now, we all understand that this is a narrative of great destiny. Davidic destiny. Messianic destiny. Vateled Bain, the son is born, and all of a sudden, the architect of everything that has unfolded up until this point has fallen out of the sky. Black Hawk down, plane is gone. The pilot has ejected. And there's this very special group of women. And the women have the vision, as we'll talk about soon. They see. They didn't have to tell Rus to take care of your baby. Rus knows to take care of her baby. A bird knows to take care of her baby. An elephant knows to take care of its young. They need to pull her out of her doldrums, her depression. They say to her, first of all, have you lost your faith? What has happened to your betochen and your trust? Baruch Hashem. Say thank God. Thank God in every situation. And furthermore, it's not just the Baruch Da'ina Emes. Did you not notice, Asher Lahishbis Lachgoyel, that Hashem has provided for you? He didn't leave you without a Redeemer, Hayyim. You're standing here today. Whatever has happened has happened, but today, here and now, there's a Redeemer. There's a future. That's going to happen without your assistance. The Yikadosh may be Israel. This is going to be a very important person amongst Yidni Merz Hashem. This boy has a very bright future. Not without you. Let's stop for a moment and think about the incredible lessons this teaches us. First of all, 
a person must never allow themselves to fall into a depression. Because you don't know you, as long as you're alive, you have a mission in life. You have something to accomplish, somebody to influence. Naomi thinks, it's pointless, it's over. I failed yet again. I had this whole scheme, this whole idea, I made Rus crazy, I set everything up and look what I did. And the message to Naomi then and to you and me today is that even in a circumstance, a situation where everything we planned seems to have come to naught. We don't have the luxury of sinking into depression and saying I'm a failure. You take a look at the situation. You say, Baruch Hashem, and now what do I have? We'll focus on the half-empty part of the cup of life What's in the cup? What's in the cup? A future. A tomorrow. Somebody who can be positively impacted, influenced, and uplifted. You're here today. You have to have the gumption to carry on. Eli Wiesel famously didn't want to marry said he couldn't bring himself to father a child to a world that could allow a holocaust to happen. And the Rebbe strongly encouraged Elie Wiesel to marry. There's a, it's a beautiful details of the story. It's documented. You can Google it. And on the day that Elie Wiesel married in Yerushalayim, he received a bouquet of long stem roses from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. My dear friends, the most amazing thing about the Holocaust survivors is that they went on to build lives. They went on to build families, children and grandchildren. It's such an inspiration. Because they lived with this spirit. You're not left without a redeemer or redemption today. Be Kodesh may be Yisrael. Make it happen. Raise the children who will be notable amongst Am Yisrael. And so many did. Another important lesson is you care about somebody, to care, to love somebody, is to know what they need. There's a beautiful story which is told in the name of Abdullah Lelever. I think if my memory doesn't fail me, he was traveling to his Rebbe Lechovich, and he came upon a, in the freezing cold, in the Polish winter, he entered a tavern to warm up. Poor man, he had to walk. And there he saw two drunk peasants. I have a drunken conversation. One says to the other, I love you, and the other says, you don't love me. He says, no, no, I love you. I said, ah, you don't love me. And this conversation goes back and forth, this drunken banter. Until one of them finally says, why do you say I don't love you? I'm telling you I love you. I'm drunk out of my head. I'm, I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. I love you. You're my friend. And his friend says, if you love me, you'd know what I need. My dear friends, what is the meaning of love? What is the meaning of avas Yisrael? What is the meaning of really to love is to know and to care? These women could have said, look, it's not for us to get involved. Naomi's got her issues. I mean, like, she's got to figure it out. 
The Rus has a baby. That's nice. Says the Balakeda. You know who these women are. Hanoshim ha'oi They loved her. And because they loved her, they knew what she needed. Do you know what she needed more than anything else? Purpose. They gave her that purpose. They encouraged her to find that purpose. When she found that purpose, it wasn't only something that was salutary or wholesome for her. It made an extraordinary contribution to Am Yisrael. When you start to understand what the Pasuk is actually saying, and now we're just beginning, my friends. The Meloi HaOimer says that these were not ordinary women. These were women, possibly, who had attended the birth. They figured out what was going on here. Meloi HaOimer says, I don't know how these women could have known that they were midwives or professionals. They didn't have sonogram, but somehow they knew that she had a faulty uterus, that she couldn't conceive. The God of Lashem, Hashem had somehow made space in anatomy that couldn't have carried a child. They were the first to recognize the miracle. And therefore they said, Naomi, do you understand what's going on here? You need to pull yourself out by your bootstraps and get involved here. This is nisim nisim. This is miracles from God. Baruch Hashem Ashalei Hishbiz Lachdeil V'yikodesh Mevi Yisrael Zer HaKosherhu This is kosher seed, so to speak. The lineage is unquestionable. It's already been ruled. Moavi, not allowed to enter Am Yisrael. Moavit, yes, as we talked about at such length. And as such, ah, there's something much, much more important that's going on over here. As the Dina Pashara says, Yikarah Shmei B'Yisrael, they didn't say it's a name. They'll be called a name. Shmei B'Yisrael. Ramzu Sheyia Adam Godel. They said this is a child with tremendous potential. He could be a great man in Israel. People will speak of him in awe because of his virtues. Everybody will need him. They will need his counsel, his wisdom. You are about to participate in the raising of a very great and public individual. Not an ordinary person. It's going to be a tzaddik. Yigeda Shmuel says, Yikodesh may be a soul. People are going to be naming them, their children after this baby. There's going to be a famous little boy. He's a blessed boy. Naomi, you're not cursed, you're blessed. And the boy is blessed. But now he needs you. Unless you think that it's just the boy who needs you, you will benefit as well. Get involved in raising the child and you'll see he will be a spirit or life restorer for you. Igeda Shmuel says, Just as a child can make a father meritorious through the development of the child, so too can he bring that, that merit, that virtue to his mother. 
ובפרט אם תדריכו בדרכי השם ואבידוסי. Especially if you will put him on the right path, if you, Naomi, will stand at Rus' side and help her raise this Yiddish kind. This will be your greatest virtue. Be your greatest virtue. Yerush Shmuel says, unless you say, it's not even my child. It's somebody else's child. This is your daughter-in-law, Asher who has loved you. That's your ladatu. That's who gave birth to this child. The daughter-in-law has loved you. Of course it's your child. If she loves you so much, It'll pass on to her progeny. She loves you. The child will love you. And he will restore your spirit. The Chotar Yishai uses an interesting euphemism here. He says, with these words, Kalosech asher ahevasech, he says, there's this expression in the Talmud, Rechela basa rechela ozla. The, the sheep, the little sheep, follows the leader. The mother loves you. Why don't you think the, child, the boy will love you? She's provided for you. She was there for you from day one. You nurtured her. And she sustained you. Surely the child will do the same. After all, this is a woman who left her nation, left her birthplace, She's better to you than seven sons. And even though right now she's not really a daughter-in-law, she's somebody else's daughter-in-law. She's Boaz's widow now. Says the Malay Ha'imer, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. As the Gereshmo points out, the mother sustained you, the child will sustain you. She went off into the fields to pick gleanings. This child will take care of you. So these are no ordinary women. These are very virtuous women. Let's think for a moment. What would have happened if these women would have stood back? Naomi's depressed. All right. She has good reason. So she won't get involved. It's not even her child. Think about that. What would have happened in world history? It's only because Naomi got involved in the raising of the child that he becomes the special tzaddik, that his potential is developed. The Malbim very interestingly puts it this way. He says, What's the hayoyim today? He says, What's important for today? What's important for today? Right now, your attitude has to change. Right now. That's how the Pasuk goes. The first thing, The first thing is today, you've got to change your attitude and thank Hashem. Look, He has not withheld, He has not left you without a Redeemer. 
This is your son who has been reborn in this child. As is known in the mystery, in the secret of Leverite marriages, and that, of course, this marriage was in the spirit of a Leverite union. And therefore, he is the one who redeems you from dying childless. It is as if your son has been reincarnated, his soul has been fused into a new iteration. That's for now. First of all, your attitude has to change because right now, look what you have. But what are we doing about it? This to raise this child to be a great yid. No. And that's in your hands. The Malbim wants to say, Meshiv Nefesh doesn't just mean that he will lift your sagging spirits, but Heshivis Nefesh Machalain. He brought back your spirit, the spirit of your son. He is an embodiment, if you will, of the spirit of your dead son Machlain. And therefore, as a son would dote upon and take care of his mother, this baby will take care of you. But it's not really my baby. It's born to the daughter-in-law who loves you so much and has tried so hard to sustain you. The child will do the same. And now, my dear friends, now that we understand a little bit of pshat, and now that we understand how Naomi was indeed comforted by the empathy and by the love of these women, now let me take you into the medrash. And if you thought this was amazing till now, hold on to your seats. The Medrash says, the woman said to Naomi, Baruch Hashem girl Hayoim. What's Hayoim? What's today? What's Hayoim? As the Marzu says in the Medrash, Tevat Hayom Miyutar. The word Hayom is superfluous. Why does it say Hayom? What's today? He didn't leave you without a Redeemer. What's today? So the Medrash says, today is a euphemism. Just like the day, which, so to speak, celestial body holds sway or has dominion? It's the sun. Says the Maharzu, This child will be like the sun for the Jewish people will eclipse everything else. In his light, everything else will fade away. Who are we talking about here? <laughs> We're talking about Mashiach, my friends. We're talking about David HaMelech. Says the Eitz Yosef. Malchus Yehuda, this is the dominion, the monarchy that comes forth from the tribe of Yehuda. Yehuda about whom it is written, no scepter or staff shall depart from Yehuda, that in the end all monarchs and magistrates will be united under the banner of Yehuda, and they will be the singular royal family for the Jewish people. Titzmach mezara, this will grow forth, come forth from your seed. Umelech HaMashiach, not only David, but the end of time and the perfection of the world as we know it, will be brought about through Mashiach. What does it say about Mashiach? That his dominion will stretch from sea 
to shining sea, from the river till the edges of earth, under the entirety of the globe, under the whole firmament of the heaven, the whole dome of heaven, there will be a single ruling dominion. That's Mashiach. That's Mashiach, my friends. The matter says further, Omar Rabbi Chunya, Rabbi Chunya taught, from the blessing of these women, the foundations of David were not uprooted. The meaning of Beit literally translates as an egg, but the Matnas Kahuna says Beit means Shorshay, the root, the root of David. Or as the Yeshua Siyankiv in his commentary of the Medrash puts it, the root will not be destroyed. And what does that refer to? And one of the most tragic stories found in the book of Kings, the wicked queen Ataliyahu seeks to eradicate the seed of David HaMelech. And she almost succeeds. She murders every member of the royal family with one exception. A little boy named Yoash is shielded and protected. And he becomes the continuation of the Davidic house of royalty. The Medrash says that is the meaning of this blessing. And then the Medrash comes and says something absolutely unbelievable. Shama, with the story of Lot and Lot's daughters, she said, the mother of Moab said, We will be able to derive, receive seed from our father. The best of intentions, thinking the whole world was destroyed and we have to repopulate the world. Says the Medrash, it doesn't say a son, it says Zerah, it says a seed. The seed that will hail from elsewhere. What seed is that? In Ein Chinuch, he brings down in the name of the Goyen Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin that the words have the same gematria, numerical equivalent of The Kabbalah Sarabak. He talks about the very strange nature of those pregnancies that resulted from the daughters of Lot through Lot, cohabitation with Lot. And it says Lot did not know Bishikhva Uvakoma. He didn't know when he lied down and when he rose up, and there's a vav, a dat on the Vakoma, and there's a whole discussion amongst our sages what that means to de-emphasize the Vav. When he got up, he kind of did know something. The Ramak says that there's sometimes very holy and special neshamas that have to be, if you will, smuggled, smuggled in because the clip of the forces of darkness that Hashem created for us to overcome are too powerful sometimes, it seems. We have to be able to thwart them. We have to outfox them and outsmart them. And that's why sometimes the holiest of neshamas come to us in the strangest of ways. The spirit of Rus comes from that moment. And Boaz is a descendant of Peretz, 
who comes from the union of Tamar and her erstwhile father-in-law Yehuda. Very strange story. Unconventional. On steroids. But it is, says the Ramak, through these unconventional, very unusual circumstances, that the spirit of Mashiach breaks through the darkness, is enabled to live. And that's the seed of redemption. My friends, from the words of this Medrash, there's one thing that becomes very clear. These are not ordinary women. These are not just friends of Naomi. These women were the carriers of prophecy. These women had the ability to bless. The Medrash says that they prophesied about the house of David HaMelech and Mashiach. The Medrash tells us, It is their blessing that saves David HaMelech. The Eitz Yosef explains that David HaMelech was deserving of Keloya, of having a seed wiped out because it was by some of his fault that a man named Achimelech and his family were wiped out, that Nov, the city of Kohanim, was wiped out, says the, the uh, Eitz Yosef, according to the affair enough. And he says, therefore, he needed a special bracha. He needed a special bracha. It Joseph explains that the business of an Achayim Avinu Zora, it should have said, we need to get a son. You see, the daughters of Lot believed that everybody had died. The world was finished. If they had a daughter, what would they do with a the daughter? They believed their father would die soon. We don't know how much longer he lived. What they needed was a son. This is going to make you a little squeamish. But the Eitz Yosef says, that, he's quoting here the Efeitoyer and others, he says that they believed that they would have to cohabit with that son to create many more children because the father was going to die soon. And in that way, they'd be able to build the world in a manner that Cain and Hevel initially procreated with their sisters. Of course, that's incest and it's terrible. But that's what they had in mind. They said, there's no choice. We, we have to do what we have to do. Otherwise, humanity is finished. They actually believed this. It was like a, a crazy movie, apocalypse. They thought the world was dead. Humanity was done for. So the emphasis should have been, hopefully we're not going to get seed. We can't do anything with a girl. Hopefully we can get a boy. Should have said Ben. Why this is Zara? So without realizing it, what they were really talking about is that we will derive from this the seed, the Zara, the seed, a different seed, the seed, the seed of Boaz. Ultimately, the seed of David HaMelech that seeds redemption and Mashiach. And so, my friends, let's go back to these psukim. Let's go back to the questions that sound almost silly, the questions I was asking. Just to bring this home now to you, before I go back to the Pasuk, I want to share with you a couple of things. The al says, what is the meaning of toiv misheva banim? It's better than seven children. It's better than seven sons. What does that mean? It says the al take a look in the al Shimoni. The al Shimoni says that this is better than seven sons, that the, the six generations that came before. Meshiva Rashi Yehuda Ad Boyaz. 
because we're going to hear the whole family tree at the end of the story. There's Yehuda who gives birth to Peretz, and Peretz gives birth to Chetzer, and Chetzer gives birth to Rom, and Rom gives birth to Aminodov, Aminodov gives birth to Nachshon, and Nachshon gives birth to Salma, seven generations. But now he says, after those seven generations, you should know it's better than the seven generations until Boaz who produced Boaz. Because this child that he produced will be far better. And indeed, his progeny, his seed, is going to be David HaMelech, who is the seventh son of Yishai. And the Alshech developing that idea of the Yalkut Shemoni, he says... The meaning of Toiv Mishav Abonim is Miperetz Ad Boyaz. That's the seven we're talking about. Kiyoter Ayatikon El Malchus Beis David Leides Avlad The birth of this child has accomplished more than the seven generations prior. Now we've arrived. Mikol Lashen Etakam B'Shivash Kadmu. This is how the Ashik explains the words of the, of the Alkut Shemoni. And then the, he leads us in a roundabout way, back to Lot. He says, This is what says in B'nai Rabbah, the 50th chapter. I found my servant David. The Hechad Matzah, says the Gemara. Where do you find him? Hechad Matzah, Bizdom. In Sedom. Ki hutzrich l'sheyemotze David sheyovi b'derech eshtarosh l'sahu. This is the way it had to be brought about. David Amelech has to come to this very strange occurrences, strange string of events. And that's the meaning of Michaya Vavino Zora, or he says Zera, that will come in Makamacharu Melech HaMashiach. In Cain, said these women, That boy is enough to restore your spirit, Naomi. In other words, these were no ordinary women, but great prophetesses. They were gifted with a vision of tomorrow. And with that vision, they uplifted Naomi to actualize it today. To develop this idea a little bit more before I go back to my questions, I didn't forget. Let me tell you something fascinating that Yigeri Shmuel says. He says, Says Yiger Shmuel, Goyel be Israel. He will be not only a redeemer for you, but in the end, a redeemer for all of Israel. The Ketzir Chitim says, Lecha Goel Hayom. Lecha Goel Hayom. The last letters of those three words are Chof, Lamed, and Mem. Read it backwards. Mem, Lamet, Chof, spells Melech. It's not just a redeemer for you, Naomi. This is monarchy for the Jewish people. And that's enough to lift your spirits. And that should be enough to motivate you to do all you can do to raise this child. And we will hear in the next set of verses how Naomi is indeed inspired and how she commits and devotes her life to raising the child. Becomes a great tzaddik. A man named Ovid. We'll talk about that tomorrow. I want to finish with the following idea. It is telling and extremely compelling that this entire Megillah is almost 
exclusively feminine in nature. Naomi is the heroine, not Elimelech. Elimelech is the husband of Naomi. Machlon and Chilion are gone. It is Rus who becomes a redeemer. Boaz is motivated, but only through the vision of Naomi and the bravery and courage of Rus. Boaz's role is minimal. He acts when he must, and then he's gone. Naomi now has to pick up the pieces. Together with Ruth, they have to raise this baby. Who inspires them? Vatemar Hanoshim, a group of women. And they give this extraordinary prophecy and blessing. And then you'll hear about the neighbors, but it's not the male. Again, the female neighbors. It's the ladies in the neighborhood who named the baby. So, I'm just going to finish with this thought. It's a thought about feminine spiritual superiority. There's an incredible mimer from the Mittler Rebbe in Torah Chaim and Parshas Chayasara. The truth is that this is developed in a mimer, a number of mimerim in Or HaTorah of the Tzemach Tzedek. The previous Rebbe has a mimer about this. And there are at least two edited sikhs where the Rebbe elaborates and develops this idea. Look at the sikhs. But the earliest source is the Teres Chaim, and I wanted to share that with you. And he says, we know, it says in the Torah, that Avram Avinu had a test. He was supposed to eject Yishmael from the house, but he couldn't do it. And Sarah said, you need to. And Hashem says, Kol She's going to call the shots. You'll do what she says. And the Mithla Rebbe says, what's going on over here? And he says, this is what Rashi tells us. Quoting our sages, that Avram Tafel Lesara bin Avius. When it came to prophetic vision, Avram Avinu had a blind spot. He didn't see with the same clarity as Sarah did. So the Middle Rebbe says, why, why is that? Why should Sarah be higher than Avram? In the Zohar, it says that in the metaphor, Avram Avinu is like the Neshama and Sarah is like the, the goof, the body. So body and soul, why should, this, why should the body be higher than the soul, if you will? Like, why is that? Why did Avraham have to listen to everything Sarah said? Maybe Avraham had the right idea. And he asks many questions like this. And he says that the, the secret to understanding this, he says, first of all, Avraham Avinu, didn't have the clarity. If he would see what would happen with Yishmol, if he would see how Yishmol would destroy the possibility of Yitzchak becoming who Yitzchak should be, he wouldn't have had a hard time, but he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. Sarah saw it with stunning clarity. So Hashem said to Avram, you're not going to be able to see it. But she can. Just listen to her. The Mittler Rebbe says, why did Sarah have the clarity? And he launches into a very sophisticated, Kabbalistic thesis. And the essence of the thesis is that Sarah represents a particular level of divinity, which is called Sheimban, that's about going down, Levarer Birurim. There's this notion that when God created the world, there was a meltdown. Shrapnel, sparks of holiness became embedded in a whole strange stratum of existence. 
And now there's an element of the divine scheme in which these, these sparks have to be redeemed. It's called refinement. When you mine for gold, gold doesn't come out of the ground, silver doesn't come out of the ground, ore comes out of the ground, a vein of gold, and it's filled with toxins. And you have to be able to refine the substance until you can extract the gold. That's the notion of a crucible. Through extreme heat and a number of other conditions imposed, you're able to extract the good things. It's never easy. This, he says, is the special gift of a woman. He quotes a Zohar saying that Chava had to link up with Sara Imenu so as to fix what went wrong at the beginning of creation. Sarah was the first to be incarcerated in the land of Mitzrayim. When she was released, she took with her wealth. That planted the seed for what happened when Am Yisrael later is in Golos Mitzrayim and they leave with the sparks as is elaborated at great length in many, many Hasidic discourses. Sarah was involved in the transformation of the camp the ordinary, the pedestrian, the mundane, and everyday aspects of our world. Avraham is Avram, a lofty father. He, in theory, was lost in the clouds. He didn't understand the ways of the world and how to extract or separate the good from the bad. As the Gemara says, a man can bring home wheat, but wheat is not bread. It is only through the process of refinement and the chaff and husk is cast aside, and the, 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 the grain is developed finally into flour, and then from the flour, bread is baked. That act of refinement and perfection, that is the domain of the woman. The man is the hunter who goes outside. The woman is the one who processes and perfects. And so the Mitla Rebbe explains here, that because of Sara Imenu's special spiritual gift, because she had what it took to create this notion of the birurim, avedus habirurim, that she was able to fix what was wrong with this world. This is the real Lurianic idea of tikkun olam, of rectifying or perfecting a world that has gone awry. And the world will be perfected when Mashiach comes. And what is written then? Eshet chayel ateret baila. Then the woman will rise supreme when Mashiach comes. Because it is she, through her wisdom, and through her tenacious efforts, that in the end, the good can be extracted, and we can leave with the gold. We're really out of time, but this, it's an amazing mimer. And I was thinking to myself, ah, this is exactly the story of Megillas Rus. The seed of Lot and his daughters, which produces an, a nation of pagan idolatry and cruelty, of everything that's rotten and wrong, but there is one spark of holiness and she has to be extracted. And it's only through that spark of holiness extracted, and Boaz comes from Peretz, and that's from Tomer, and another strange, unconventional union. And Boaz and, and Rus come together. And, and the seed is born, and it's these women, the woman, in their soft speaking manner, were able to convey this to Naomi. And Naomi is the one who has to develop that. Only Naomi can develop this. She has to be there at Rus's side to develop this. The story of Megillus Rus is really, amongst other things, 
the story of female spiritual superiority and the incredible contribution of the matriarchs and the great heroines of the Jewish people who, in effect, enable us to overcome the challenges and to usher in the blessed Messianic era. It is written that when we left Mitzrayim, it was bizuchus noshin tzidkonies, in the merit of righteous women. The Arizal maintained that in the last generation before the coming of Mashiach, and the Rebbe believed that that's us, it would be the righteous woman who would again lead the way. Perhaps, perhaps this reframes and helps us appreciate and understand the incredible messages of these two psukim, verse 15, 14 and 15 of Megillus Rus, the woman of empathy, the woman of prophetic intuition, the woman who had the power to bless, who together could inspire Naomi, who together with Rus will raise the direct ancestor of Dovin HaMelech, ultimately catalyzing the transformation of the world as we know it with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira will be Amenu speedily and in our days Amen. Thank you so much for joining today.